Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Akash Andachi, regular host of the Animal Studies channel, and today I'm joined by Dr. Jason H. Pearl to discuss his book, Utopian Geographies and the Early English Novel, published by the University of Virginia Press in 2004. Dr. Pearl is is Associate Professor of English at Florida International University and specializes in British literature from the 17th to the 19th centuries. Dr. Pearl, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So nowadays, the word utopia generally isn't historicized, and perhaps our rather skeptical outlook does it on the surface pair well with utopian abstractions. And so to begin, I wondered if you might introduce post-restoration utopias and their importance to writers and readers in early modern England. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think that the the dominant mood right now, um, the, the dominant the genre is is probably not utopia, but but dystopia, um, for for political reasons, for for ecological reasons. I could go on and on, um, but in fact, they're not so different. Um, insofar as uh, utopian literature it often um, points out uh, and satirizes. Uh, indirectly or implicitly, the the problems of the world as it as it currently exists or existed at whatever particular time we're talking about, um, and and dystopian literature can express hopefulness. Um, but you're right that the that the idealism of of utopias or the the idealism that people associate with utopias is. It it seems it might seem a little bit out of step right now. Um, it's not necessarily the case that the people in the in the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries were more optimistic, um, though maybe they were. Um, it's that that writers and readers of this time, specifically in Britain, that's that's sort of my the, uh, that's where all my case studies come from. Um, aimed their attention outward at places on the map that hadn't been written about yet, um, at least not by Europeans. And, and there was this assumption that these places held limitless potential. Um, the thinking was that distance correlated with difference so that faraway lands could be imagined or were, were imagined as capable of radically different social and, and even natural possibilities. Um, of course, that was changing, um, and that's kind of the focus of the book. There, there, there were, was lots of travel in the period. Um, there were lots of travel accounts. Trade and empire brought together faraway places. The so-called blank spots um, on the map were being, were being filled in. Um, and eventually, by the end of the period that that I consider, um, even novels um, sort of started to turn inward toward 
national and and domestic settings. So there's a kind of there's a kind of drawing in. There's a there the the utopias that I'm interested in are are possible because um, the world seemed filled with um, the world itself geographically seemed filled with possibility. Um, but what I'm looking at is kind of the closing down of that possibility and the way it gets um, transferred to um, to other ways of carrying it. Um, so, so um, yeah, that's the purpose of the book, to see how the potential for utopia once projected onto geography um, gets redirected to ways of thinking and acting on a on a smaller scale, um, and and then diminished further in novels at the end of the period that I look at um, when when the the typical setting becomes um, becomes England or becomes the the domestic space within England, which is you know a kind of further contraction. Right, and and these authors, um, maybe for our readers, I, I should make it a bit more clear. You know, you you speak of Margaret Cavendish and Daniel Defoe, Jonathan Swift, Afro Ben. How did you come to choose these four these these kind of iconic texts? Yeah, um, so I've got four authors and and five texts. They're all um, they're all. I mean, they're they're. They're pretty well known to specialists of the of the 17th and 18th centuries. They're they're not all treated as as novels. That's kind of um I guess you would say a vexed category for for specialists of the period. And they're not all treated as utopias. So so the grouping of them together, though they're all somewhat canonical, um, especially now, um, the grouping is somewhat provocative, I guess. Um, hmm. What I argue is that they all do something similar with, with interesting variations. Um, they all locate utopia in, in, in material or geographic space. Then they test and reject it um, as no longer possible. Then they recuperate that potential um, as a way of thinking or, or acting. And I call these utopian interiorities or, or utopian sociabilities. Um, yeah, that's so. That's kind of how I came to them. Um, one of the first courses that I I think it's actually the very first course that I taught in 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 grad school was a writing course that um, that could be sort of um, focused thematically. And my my theme was utopias and dystopias. So hmm. I taught, I think I taught, um, I taught Swift's Gulliver's Travels in that, in that class. Um, and I, I came to the other ones not long afterwards. So yeah, they kind of, the, the, the grouping seemed probably obvious in my mind, but there's a way, there's a way in which like when you're living with a certain set of questions and, and, and texts that you teach and, and think about the obviousness to you doesn't, I mean, 
what's obvious to you might not be obvious to other people. So, so, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I can, I can kind of recognize that the, the grouping of them together is somewhat um, provocative in the sense that they're all not really thought of as, as novels, especially Margaret Cavendish's um, Blazing World and, and Swift's Gulliver's Travels. They're not all thought of as, as utopias. People talk about, um, I mean, some people talk about um, Gulliver's Travels as a, as a satire. Some people talk about it as a utopia. There's an argument to be made that those two are, are, in, are inextricable, that they, that they imply one another. Um, I don't, I don't, I, I mean, I, I don't hear people talking about, um, a lot of people talking about, um, Orinoco as, as a utopia, but I think all of these, I think the ideas are, are, are there in the background. And I think that the reason why maybe people don't talk about these texts in the context of utopia is that, um, is that the idea itself, the concept of utopia is in a state of transformation in these texts, you know, it's being taken and, and turned into something else. So it's, so they're not self-evidently, um, they're not self-evidently utopian. Um, and, um, insofar as they, they indulge in unrealistic or, or anti-realistic modes of representation, they're, they're, they're not really thought of as, as novels either, but, um, but yeah, I hope to kind of like, I hope to, to say something about the, the text themselves and about the, the, um, you know, the main text of the period by, by putting to putting them together like this. Yeah. And and it, it does form an interesting timeline. And, And I wondered also, in addition to the text, the text you selected, um, this theme, this, this, you know, this, uh, the scholarship surrounding utopia. When you were sitting down to write this book, what, what, it, what did you notice about the existing scholarship, and, and how did you go about finding a novel angle to, to treat the subject? There's not a lot of work on utopian literature in the in the 18th century. There's um, there are a couple there are a couple books. Um, there are definitely articles out there. There there are couple kind of um um there are a couple anthologies that 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 have come out somewhat um somewhat recently most of, i mean i think that the renaissance grabs most of the attention um mm-hmm. generally it's assumed that that utopian thought goes into decline after after the renaissance that um that it that that utopian thought gives way to projects or schemes for improvement um, that were more more practical and and incremental, and the the kind of radical uh, breakage and or disjunction of a of a utopia from the rest of the world um, is something that goes into decline. And and what I want to say is that it's not so much that it goes into a decline as that it goes into um, that it, that it becomes transformed. So, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, there's a lot of really super interesting theory on, on, um, on utopia and utopian literature. Um, most of the 
literary histories on the topic seem to focus on um, on the Renaissance. Um, there's some on the 19th century, but um, yeah, I'm looking at kind of a, a period that's underrepresented in the in the in the critical literature, um, and um, you know <laughs> that's what we do, mm-hmm. I guess, is that as we look for things that um, that people haven't said. So so yeah, I, I mean, uh, I'm trying to kind of um, fill in a gap and and um, make it possible to tell a a, a longer, more continuous story of the of the of the genre and part of the um i suppose the argument against saying that utopias did just simply decline the 18th century is the immense popularity of of, of many of these texts and um one of the themes that that i kind of picked up on reading was that in um in class and colonial studies now, people often speak of preconceptions informing conceptions and, and people's ideas in Europe being informed by travel literature in this way and travel literature having this monopoly on, on, on knowledge of certain parts of the world. And, and this comes up in the book. And I wonder if you could just discuss how what physical realities do make their way into these stories and, and how are they um, decided upon and, and, and altered. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great, that's a great question. And, um, I think there's a, I think there's a lot more to say about this that, than, than I've said, certainly lots of the, of the literature of the period was inspired by travel narratives. Um, sometimes just a little detail in a travel narrative, um, you know, in an otherwise prosaic travel narrative, a lot of, a lot of them read as, ship's logs. A lot of them are, you know, more or less, um, narrativized versions of ship's logs with sometimes they have the, the, the kind of the narrative sequestered from the descriptive parts. Um, but, but, um, but this literature, um, this factual literature inspired a lot of, of some of some really lasting works of, um, of literature that get taught in, in, in universities still. I mean, um, there's Richard Steele's Inkle and Yarko, which comes from a scenario in, um, in an account of Barbados. There's Samuel Taylor Coleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, which comes from an episode. I think it's just a sentence in, um, in George Shelvock's Voyage Around the World. This is a little bit about the albatross. Um, and then, it's been argued that that Robinson Crusoe is an expansion and amplification of of a brief account of an actual castaway um, named Alexander Selkirk um, in a travel narrative by Woods Rogers. Um, and actually, that that's my first. That was my first, very first academic publication was to think about. Okay, well, like we have this. We have this, um, you know. There's this this episode in in Woods Rogers' cruising voyage around the world, in which um, he he talks about um, um, finding and saving this this guy um, Alexander Selkirk, and then kind of writes about um, his life um, as Alexander Selkirk told him. Um, and then um, 
you know, there are other cast, there are other castaway narratives at the time. And I don't think we can draw a, a direct line um, from only this one text um, from Woods Rogers to Daniel Defoe, but it seems pretty likely that Defoe made use of it. Um, and it's really interesting how he, um, how he uses this source material, but then makes something categorically different out of it um, by by expatiating, um, by by expanding on on the bare facts um, given by Rogers. I can't remember how many pages it is in, um, in, in, in Woods Rogers narrative, but you know, it becomes a much longer thing um, in, for, for, it becomes a whole novel for, for Defoe. So yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. And the, the kind of um, you know, the kind of like uh, the kind of, um, taciturn suggestiveness of of a of a bare detail of a couple sentences in a in a travel account the way it becomes a a whole novel is is really interesting and i think it says a lot about the 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 creative process at the in the time about the the way that people conceived of of facts um versus fictions the kind of you know the somewhat undifferentiated matrix of, of those two categories that probably seem we, I mean, we take them for granted now, but, but you could argue that they're, you know, that, that, that they're not problematic for us only because the question isn't quite as interesting. I mean, there's still, um, you know, there's, there's still a fuzzy line between, um, you know, based on a true story or, or the way that, or, or autobiographical fiction, the way that, the line between um, between um, fact and fiction is still is still you know is still it's hard to sort of like draw that line distinctly. And and one of the most difficult lines to draw, I'm I'm sure, is is between the author and and the protagonist or or, or the narrator in the case of Orinoco. Um, it, it, did you find that 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 was an important part of your research in determining whether or not um, Defoe is is to some extent Crusoe, or Swift is to some extent Gulliver. Hmm. Um, I think that's that question applies mainly to um, to um, Orinoco, to Afrobane's right. Orinoco, because yeah. there's a question of whether whether she went to the um, Suriname as a spy. This is something that it doesn't seem settled, you know, the, the biographers still talk about it and, and, and debate it. Um, it's not really, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, that's definitely the extent to which Bain actually went to Suriname is, it remains an open question. The extent to which like this, I mean, the, the, the possibility that this is about an actual person, um, the, the is, is also an open question, um, you know. Well, yeah. Sorry, sorry. That that, that 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 might have been a bit too much of an open-ended question. That, that um, but building off Orinoco, maybe. Um, I also wondered. You know, you, you speak of these these um, kind of subcomponents of utopia, the utopian possibility, and the paradise within, all, all within this this chapter. And I wonder if you could 
explain some of the the ways not all these utopias are are that comparable. You know, some of the differences, for instance, between Orinoco and and the Blazing World, and 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 how what that. I mean, obviously, the the authors have their own um, reasons, but how how did you approach Utopia in two such different books? Yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> so let me say first that the the tradition of utopian literature is really self-aware. There's this sense that you have when you're reading, um, um, you know, when you're that, that there's, that there's a kind of self-conscious engagement with and revision of, of, of previous works. Um, each new work seems to kind of invoke and revise details of, of ones that came before. So for instance, in, in Moore's utopia, there's this weird thing. Um, um, there's a rule uh, program. I don't know what you want to call it uh, in which <laughs> prospective couples get to look at each other naked before they marry each other. Um, <laughs> and um, I guess it has something to do with reproduction um, and, and bacon in the new Atlantis thought this was indelicate and, and says that no here, he specifies that here um, that couple they appoint friends to look at um, to look at their their prospective partners. Um, it's still weird, and but it's like it's such a detail. It's such a specific detail, um, and and there's an explicit reference to to a previous work. And I think that's pretty common in um, um, in in utopian literature. There's often this kind of winking aside in which the author says. Yeah, well, they do this thing in this earlier text, and it's it's um, we do things differently here. We do it this way. Um, there's a moment in in um, um, in I mean, Robinson Crusoe is obviously about the spiritual development of a castaway. In in Gulliver's Travels, in the fourth in the fourth part, um, it's specified that the Yahoos, who are this sort of like degenerate race of humans have come from originary castaways. So, so you have the sense in Swift that, um, that the kind of possibility of, um, of redemption and of development becomes instead degeneration. So, so, I mean, that felt to me when, when, when I read it, like a very specific reference to, um, to Robinson Crusoe, and I think that's pretty common in the um, in in all of these uh, in throughout the tradition. The thing that I'm taking from text to text is the is the so-called um, voyage narrative convention. Um, each of these texts will redeploy that. So, like there's a there's a sea voyage. Um, Oh no, there's a shipwreck and we ended up in this, you know, unknown place. Um, and that, that, that gets, um, redeployed again and again. And it really stops at the, it, it ceases to become a convention of utopian writing in the 18th century. Um, around the time of the, the French revolution, um, when utopia gets, gets, cast into the future it becomes something that um, um, that that is discontinuous 
in, temporally rather than geographically because of hmm. because the the this the you know this is the age of revolutions when history didn't really seem like it was locked in a cycle anymore the future could be categorically different and that then becomes the the, the placeholder for um, for utopia so the the voyage convention comes it, it's not that it completely goes away but it, it it kind of falls into disuse at the end of the the period that I that I look at um, and I, I look at what happens to it so in each of these texts we have somebody who who travels to a place um, um, the pattern is and they're not it's not a symmetrical pattern there are there are versions of this in each of the novels that I look at um, but the the, the the particular place becomes less utopian because of specific events or or, or further description, and then it the, the potential for for this in, this utopian difference becomes recovered in the in the in the traveler who returns back to England and finds a way to accommodate utopia in um, in her or his life um, and in connections. Um, that are formed with other people um, in a kind of intimate circle. So, okay, that was a long, sorry, that was a long kind of preamble no, no. to that. But um, I think that um, she, so you were asking me about um, specifically about um, Orinoco, I think you were asking me about Blazing World yeah. and Orinoco. Um, and so another, I can describe kind of another feature of the book is that is that you know the novel is the novel and utopian literature are kind of like the big generic categories, but more specifically in each chapter I look at 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 uh, genres that themselves convey um, utopian possibility. So in the case of um, of the Blazing World, that's the, the lunar voyage there's a there's a um, there's a genre of imaginary voyages to the moon um, that becomes very popular after um, after the invention of the telescope and the you know the dissemination of the telescope people start being able to look at the moon and they imagine um, journeys there um, in the same way that we you know, a lot of our utopias today are projected into either the future or onto different planets. So this is kind of the beginning of that. And that, that possibility gets taken up in The Blazing World by Cavendish. And then, um, and then in the case of Orinoco, it's, it's romance, which is a, a, a kind of idealized story of, of love and honor. So in Cavendish, utopia is... Um, emplaced on a different planet, um, it it shares features with lunar worlds described by earlier writers, um, but there's a focus on on science. So so, and this kind of undoes that potential for radical difference. Um, it becomes obvious that what Cavendish is interested in is not the moon, um, but her own world. She's interested in um, the sort of politics and the the science of of her own world and um and that seems to take utopia off the table then it gets remade as a as a creative act something that you can imagine 
something that can be imagined and retreated to internally um, and even shared with with intimate friends. Um, and then in the case of Bain, in the case of Orinoco, it's um, you, utopia, the possibility of utopia is expressed in the language of, of romance. It's, it's um, Edenic, it's paradisical. Um, and then very quickly, you know, it, it gets deferred into the sort of um, interior of the continent um, and then Suriname becomes uh, becomes just a sort of failed colony, um, um, rather than rather than a site of of utopian possibility. And then it becomes after that um, recovered as a as a nostalgic ideal that you can you can retain in memory and and memorialize in. Um, in words, so the the so to you know having taken these two examples, um, the terms are different in both um, in both Bain and Cavendish, um, but there's a sort of there's a there's a there's a similar kind of pattern, and that's that's a pattern that I describe in in, in all of these texts, and um, um, so I'm not really looking though I am going from the 1660s to the to the 1720s or 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 even later um i'm not really looking at a i guess a kind of continuous history in which each text takes up um something that's left off in the previous text you know like it's Mm -hmm. you know it's not as if there's a sort of like handoff to the next text um, even though I described, I just described utopian literature as very self-aware of predecessors. I think all of these, I think of these texts as all kind of, um, um, kind of inhabiting the same space of possibilities and sort of doing, the, doing, doing, um, similar things with those possibilities, um, in such a way that, that you can see a pattern um and and compare and contrast um the way it's enacted in each text in in interesting ways definitely and on the points that you were just making about cavendish in particular but um but to some extent i'm sure all the 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 other four texts as well this relationship between on one hand utopias physically going through great means to separate themselves from from the realities of, of, of the readers. They're simultaneously providing some commentary on on said realities. And um, and you know earlier when you when you referenced uh, Gulliver's travels sometimes being read as utopian literature, sometimes as as satire. And for satirists this um, the, the use of allegory was 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 an important uh, tool in, in their in their repertoire and so that they could kind of um, Take take aim at, at all ranks of society. So, did did you find that the crafting of these geographies? H- how did it relate to the, the the issues that each of these authors were were dealing with um, in in their contemporary societies? Yeah. So, um, so utopias are always referential. I think that's one of the that's one of the first things. I think I I that was sort of like one of my really big light bulb moments when I was. Um, when I was teaching that 
that class that I talked about um, as a as a grad student, it's it's kind of easy to think of a utopia because after all, I'm talking about distance. I'm talking about radical separation. It's easy to think of utopia as a kind of escape or or as existing in a in a kind of space of of um absolute difference but all utopias are are referential even the most um kind of out there possibilities of the of the genre they might seem totally disconnected um but they're always a kind of inverted mirror image they're they're imagined in contrast to something concrete in the mat in, in, in the world of the writer they're um and so even fantasies of extrication are, are, are referential and critical. Um, you know, there's a world that they are imagined in contradistinction to. So in the case of Gulliver's Travels, that's, that's becomes really, um, you know, that's a really, that becomes really, really clear because everything that's ostensibly foreign, um, once you decode the allegory becomes it becomes familiar, so that the the idea of difference, the idea of an alternative, seems to collapse back into sameness. Um, and I think this is how this is how Swift undermines how he sort of like you know he posits this idea of of utopian possibility, and then he says, "Well, actually, things are you know." This place, that place, Lilliput, Brobdingnag, are actually quite similar. If you think about it, it's you know where they're they're they they you know they're represented on a scale of one to twelve or twelve to one, so it's bigger or smaller, and how things look according to those perspectives. But otherwise, there's a lot that's quite the same. And so, I think the suggestion is that that the possibility of escaping into a world outside of reference outside of contact points is impossible because there are because because there are universal laws of of um of human perfectibility um or against human perfectibility and that's why that's why the um that's why Lilliput actually looks a lot like England, whether you, whether you decode the allegory very specifically and say, oh, this is this person and this is this other person, or whether you just look at them as, um, you know, minimized to pettiness, you know, whether you think about the allegory specifically, particularly, or generally, um, there's really no escaping the, the, the sameness. Um, what what it what it represents, and that's why um, that's why Gulliver is is ultimately. I mean, he wants to stay with the Winhams in the in the last part of the book. Um, this is this kind of perfect. Um, though there are people who would argue with that this perfect um, race of horses. Um, why they why they ultimately reject him um, because. It's, it's not a possibility. So it's only a possibility that he can kind of cre- recreate on a limited scale, which is what he does um, 
you know, there's more debate about the end of this novel. Does he does he descend into madness, or or is this something constructive when he when he goes back home and tries to recreate Winnemland in miniature um, by spending all of his time with his horses in his stable. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that I think that um, um, this I, this is a super interesting question. This idea of escaping reference it's it's not something that's possible. But what is possible is creating a kind of enclave within the world as it exists, um, in which some kind of more limited difference is possible. And escaping um, reference, um, there's also this this top this the fact that there's maps, right? That in in your book you have a few images that are, they're helpful as you as we the reader today are trying to understand. Uh, some of these stories, but I'm wondering back then. There's Crusoe's itinerary and in farther adventures, and and there's and, and there's must be some illustrations or some physical manifestations that help the reader perhaps um, imagine these spaces, or or is it mostly just kind of more abstract depictions that remind them slightly of England? Oh, you mean? Um, are you asking if the um, if the map? Um, if the map makes um, calls uh, is a sort of like reference itself to the map of the island. Is that a reference to England? Yeah. And, and just to a degree, if cartography by this point, either for the authors or for the public was you know, developed and, and prevalent enough to kind of be an important fixture in their imagination as they're reading these stories. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's that's definitely true. Um, Robinson Crusoe and Gulliver's Travels come with um, engravings of maps um, and specially made ones. Um, mm-hmm. The so that I think that you know this is a kind of um, visual example of the way that uh, fictions are built, uh, kind of on top of facts. Or, or in the blank spaces where facts don't yet exist. Um, so yeah, there are there are there are maps of the of the um, of the lands that um, that, um, that that Gulliver travels to, and there's a there's a sort of like um, itinerary uh, in the farther adventures of where um, of where. Crusoe travels. There's also a an engraving of a kind of like less cartographic engraving of Crusoe's island that 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 represents the different spaces on the island according to Crusoe's experience. That that's sort of a more, I guess you would say, like subjective map. But yeah, maps at the time. Um, conveyed specificity and 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 credibility um and um you know there's a whole genre of um of of imaginative cartography i can't remember the name of the book but um but um yeah and and um you could say i mean 
yeah, yeah. So cartography is a really is a really um, it's it's certainly there are there are lots and lots of new maps that that come out with um, with the the travel narratives that that are published at the time, um, and it's a it's a mode of representation that people had become more familiar with, but but you know in the same way that um, travel narratives themselves are they occupy this really interesting um, epistemological position because on the one hand a traveler can kind of say anything by authority um, I've been there you haven't you don't know what you're talking about I do I'm telling you this thing based on my experience um, that's what travelers can do on the other hand what they say is often new and strange and unbelievable. And so lots of travelers get treated as, as, as liars or exaggerators, tellers of tall tales. And I think you could say the same thing about, about maps. They, for the very reason that they conveyed a sense of credibility um, for that very reason, you could also say, well, they only convey a sense of credibility for these formal reasons there's actually nothing substantial behind it to make me believe this. And so they could be distrusted or, or believed based on the sort of rhetoric of truthfulness in a, in a travel narrative or, or based on, you know, modes of representation of, of um, visual representation in the case of a, of a map. And during this time, um, you know, kind of parallel to the writing of, of this utopian literature, um, there's these colonial endeavors, which which you refer to as, as as being part of the the network that's bringing all this information back to Europe and, and inspiring these these books. And in some of these colonial endeavors, they in turn provide this uh, this categorization, this organization of knowledge that in some ways laid a foundation for for theories of civilizational superiority and and generalized differences that that came later. And, and you write at one point that um, adventurers sought the horizon riches to lay hold of, not better societies to escape to, the, the latter referring to, to utopian literature instead. So does did utopian literature have that same relationship with, with Eurocentrism or with um, what did, did it have aims or, or, or did, it, did it unknowingly contribute to any of that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the... Uh, the the possibility of of um, um, adjacent and 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 coterminous you know like uh, unknown spaces is is a is a galvanizing force in the imagination. It's really exciting. This is like utopia here and now. It exists somewhere, um, and that seems very positive. But um, it's not all positive, and travel writing is rife with racism, um, with ethnocentrism. Um, it helped beget stadial theories of human development, as you, as you just pointed out, which are hierarchized, um, uh, you know, as a theory of, of different cultures of the world that are hierarchized according to European criteria that, um, um, and, um, and utopias themselves could be blueprints for colonies 
They could they could argue for imperial expansion, um, and as a consequence, um, colonial uh, oppression, exploitation. There's a whole there's a whole um, um, kind of um, strand of of writing about utopia that comes after World War II that distrusts its authoritarian tendencies. Um, so that's why what I'm interested in is the is the enabling feature of utopian writing rather than the specific prescriptions. Um, you know, I don't I don't support the specific um, the specific details of the of these worlds um, as as proposals for us to follow. Um, the genre helps us. I think what's valuable about the genre is that it helps us see um, the contingency of orthodoxy and, and to understand that things could be different, um, that, the, that the current state of the world was never inevitable. That, you know, if you, if you read about a, a world that's very different, you start to see that your own world could be very different. Um, but of course, the chance to make things better um, means there's also a chance to make them worse. Contingency is a double-edged sword. So, hmm. you know, one of the really I'm 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 so glad to have the opportunity to talk about this book um, um, because it's it's helped me. It's I mean, I think differently about some of these ideas now. Um, seven years after it was published, um, when I wrote the book, which originated as a dissertation, which was itself conceived in, in the early 2000s, I guess I thought that things felt very stuck um, and that a jolt of contingency seemed productive. And um, and you know, this kind of brings us full circle back to your initial question about about whether um, whether you, whether utopian thinking seems out of step now. Um, these days, seeing what we've seen in the last you know four and a half years, seeing what we've seen in the last as an American, seeing what and seeing what what I've seen in the last um, few months, I'm a lot more guarded about about um contingency you know the 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 possibility of 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 showing people that things don't have to be this way things could be otherwise it seemed it seemed much more predominantly salutary um at the time when i was writing this book when i when i was working on it as a dissertation and when i was um working on it as a book you know i'm a little more I mean, I'm a little more anxious and worried about um, the possibility of that uh, uh, that things could get a lot worse, uh, you know, as well as I am hopeful that that things could get better. So, um, so yeah, it, it's it. I mean, utopian writing has has underwritten lots of terrible things in the world, um, and I never I never intended to to insulate it from that to kind of like to argue against that by focusing on, um, on a specific aspect of it, um, 
you know, not the content, not the prescriptions, um, not to think about utopia as a blueprint for change, but instead just to think about it as a process, as, as a kind of hypothetical that, that gives us space to reflect on, on alternatives. That seemed very productive to me. Now, it still seems productive, but, but I guess I worry more. Um, I worry more that if things can get better, they can also get worse. So I guess I've, I, I'm a little bit, um, you know, my hopefulness is a little bit chastened um, these, these several years on. Um, but I think that's been, but, but you're totally right to point that out. That's, that's, um, that's an important, um, that's been an important part of the way people have talked about, um, utopia from, from, for, for a while. Um, um, it's, it's, it's possibilities, but also it's, it's dangers. Well, Dr. Pearl, Thank you so much for taking the time to discuss your book and 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 all these themes with me today. It's it's always, um, you know, so much fun to explore new angles to these 18th century classics, which, which many of which might need some, you know, uh, problematization nowadays. And um, I very much enjoyed reading uh, the book. Uh, so thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. It was a huge pleasure. <laughs>